As the Soviet army closed in on Berlin, the last days of the Nazi regime were filled with chaos and extreme tensions as Adolf Hitler, self-proclaimed Fuhrer of Germany, descended into increasingly desperate madness as his grand vision of an Aryan nation went down in flames, but was an end that was always destined. This week on History with Britannia, we'll be discussing the final days and fall of the Nazi regime, culminating in the suicide of Adolf Hitler. In order to fully explore this topic, we'll be talking about how Hitler came into a position of power, how the war started, when it turned, the in the Nazi regime and the scars that Nazi policies have left on the world. Welcome to History with Brittany, the podcast that explores all things history. Each Wednesday, we'll discuss a historical topic, person, or event, and how it has impacted our world today. So without further ado, let's get started. To Adolf Hitler, life was about the struggle to survive. Mein Kampf, his philosophical and often nonsensical autobiography, is a testament to this because the title actually means My Struggle. As the war drew to its final close in late April 1945, the Nazis were attempting to hold on what, to what little power they had left. By this point, most of the generals had either been phased out or had, in some cases, committed suicide. This implosion of Nazi power and strength was inevitable in 1941 when Hitler made his ill-fated decision to invade the Soviet Union. This is perhaps the thing that people don't understand about Hitler. He would have always committed suicide. The fear of capture was always a deep concern to this delusional leader. The decision, in fact, was an extension of his personal philosophy about struggle. The superiority of the allies meant that Hitler had failed. In fact, he mentioned suicide for years before he ever pulled the trigger. It would have always been his final act. In this episode, in honor of those that sacrificed their lives in World War II 75 years ago, we'll discuss how the suicide of Hitler was the fruition of years of misguided and extreme policies that were always destined to failure. It's an opportunity to learn from the mistakes of history and ensure that something like World War II and the Holocaust never happens again. Part 1. Hitler's Charisma how could one man convince an entire country to march towards oblivion? That's the question I think that we've all asked ourselves at one point or another during a discussion of the Nazi regime in World War II. How did Hitler do it? Since the collapse of the Nazi regime, those that lived through it and historians have suggested a variety of reasons, from propaganda to his oratory skills and his ability to present a grand vision to the people of Germany. While all of that is true, at the heart of it, what moved most people and motivated them to work, kill, and die for Hitler was his incredible charisma. It was an ability that didn't work on everyone, but moved generals to ignore a sound military strategy to go along with Hitler's ideas, and for normally nonviolent men to go out into Eastern Europe and murder a million Jews as part of the Einsatzgruppen, troops that were specifically assigned to follow the German army and kill every Jew they came across by shooting them at point-blank range in mass graves. This ability also moved an entire country to war, though not everyone agreed with this plan. And in many ways, it was rather surprising. Adolf Hitler is not from the German nor the Austrian aristocracy. It was a point of contention to many of the more titled noblemen within the government, since lineage during that time still mattered to many. Hitler was born in Austria in the Austria-Hungarian Empire in 1889 into an unremarkable family. There's not a lot of information about his first years of life. We actually don't even know the identity of his paternal grandfather, and the surname Hitler isn't even accurate. His father's original last name was Schlick. Lickengruber. 
For his future endeavors, Adolf was proud that his father changed his name into something a little bit more digestible and less quote-unquote rustic. As many people know, he ended up in Vienna as a young adult, attempting and failing to get into art school. He created, I guess the best way to describe it, it's rather cheap paintings that were about postcard size. None of them were remarkable, and some were direct copies from others. It was also during this time that he became rather fascinated with Wagner's operas, which told the mythology of Germany. Of course, once the war began, Hitler joined the German military. He was exceptionally dedicated to being a soldier and loved the idea of heroism and war, but was considered extremely odd by most of his fellow soldiers as he did not drink and he did not utilize the services of prostitutes, although with venereal disease running rather rampant during that time, it was probably a wise choice. He eventually suffered in a gas attack and was actually in the hospital when the war officially ended. But at that point, there was nothing that indicated to the people he knew that in only about 15 years, he would become chancellor of Germany. It was in the aftermath of the war that Adolf Hitler started becoming the monster that we consider him today. A large part of this was his rather unnatural charisma, which pulled people, despite their common sense, telling them otherwise. That first became apparent in the beer halls of Bavaria when he started making political speeches. Though he struggled with small groups, he really came alive in front of large crowds. It was during these early speeches where he first came to the attention of many men who would eventually make up much of the upper echelon of the Nazi party. Hans Frank, who would eventually become ruler of Nazi-occupied Poland, recalled, quote, The first thing that one felt was, the speaker is somehow honest. He does not want to convince you of something that he himself does not fully believe in. And in the pauses of his speeches, his blue eyes were shining passionate. Everything came from the heart, and he struck a chord with all of us. Unquote. Hermann Goering, a war hero who was eventually given control over the Luftwaffe, which is Germany's air force, reflected, quote, Hitler spoke about Versailles. He said that a protest is successful only if backed by power to give it weight. Conviction was spoken word for word as if from my own soul. I just wanted to speak to him at first to see if I could assist him in any way. He received me at once and after I introduced myself, he said it was an extraordinary turn of fate that we should meet. He spoke at once about things which were close to our hearts, the defeat of our fatherland, Versailles. I told him that I myself to the fullest extent and all I was and possessed were completely at his disposal for this, in my opinion, most essential and divisive manner the fight against the Treaty of Versailles, unquote. Joseph Goebbels, Hitler's true believer until the very end, was initially rather unimpressed. It wasn't until Hitler invited Goebbels to watch him give a speech that the eventual propaganda minister changed his mind. He wrote in his diary, quote, I love him. He has thought through all of this. Such a sparkling mind can be my leader. I bow to the greater, the political genius, unquote. And later he also wrote, quote, Adolf Hitler, I love you because you are great and simple at the same time. This is what one calls genius, unquote. Obviously, that was hard to get through without laughing. It just kind of reads like a 14-year-old girl or something. It's kind of ironic because Goebbels was by far the, one of the most educated men within the Nazi machine. By 1921, Hitler had become the leader of the fledgling Nazi party, and though there was some brief setbacks in 12 years, he became chancellor. In his speeches, according to the book Hitler's Charisma by Lawrence Rees, Hitler had the incredible ability to portray things as an either-or. Part of his philosophy that was there really at the beginning of his political career and to the end of his life in the bunker was his belief in this eternal struggle. It was very Darwinian that only the strong survive. So when he had a political or personal 
personal victory he won and therefore he came out as a stronger individual and his philosophy was proven superior. When he started to lose, especially during the war, it became a scorched earth policy where everything was destroyed and in the ultimate act, he killed himself as penitence in a certain way for his own failure. Part 2. Into the Abyss well, there are a lot of things that happened in between, including Hitler obtaining the chancellorship and being the leader of Germany in nearly every way. The path to the bunker in the end began when he made the initial decision to invade some of Germany's neighbors and restructured and his desire to restructure the European continent around his grand dream. One of the first big risks Hitler took was to incorporate Austria into Germany. It was a bold move. Post-World War I, Germany was forced to secede some of its territories to the Allied forces. While most of this was in France and in Czechoslovakia, this was done in order to punish Germany for its role in starting the war. Again, not only was this all ended up being rather ill-advised, but it gave Hitler an excuse as he consolidated power within the military to take over territory from other countries that he considered rightfully Germany's. Austria was first, though this was more about a shared tradition and heritage than it was about reclaiming a specific territory. For members of the military, most specifically Ludwig Beck, chief of staff for the German army, Hitler's plan was considered a risk that could perhaps start an unnecessary conflict. It wasn't the first time Hitler ignored the advice of his military leaders, and it definitely would not be the last. Beck was also unique is that he was not susceptible to Hitler's charisma, unlike so many others. Until this point, many in the German establishment, again, these men would be considered likely nobility or had some sort of family history with deep connections, did things according to tradition. There was this notion that Hitler could be amenable to the influence of the military and political leaders surrounding him, and could, to a certain extent, be mostly a figure head that would be turned in whatever way they wished. This notion in uniting Austria and Germany in many other circumstances will be considered foolish and completely inadvisable. After all, Austria is an independent country. It was the first time that these men not only knew that they could not bend Hitler to their will, and when the Austrian invasion went through, these men realized that they could not bend Hitler to their will like they thought. Hitler's leadership style is that his will and vision is absolute. And if you deviate from that, or argue with him, then he will seek ways to remove you to get someone else within that position who will do exactly what he says when he says it. He also believed that he would win. In his mind, Hitler was a brilliant political and military strategist, which besides a few early victories, turned out to be astronomically false. Back to Austria. The idea of this union, which in many other times would have perhaps been an opening salvo to a larger conflict, was actually wildly successful, and the Nazi leadership were met with joy from many Austrian people. Hitler even successfully got the Chancellor of Austria, Kurt Alois Josef Johann Schlossing to resign from his position. That is a long name. As German tanks rolled through Austria, they were met with flowers and glowing crowds, excited to unite with the quote-unquote fatherland. At the time, Austria had been experiencing a similar depression to Germany. Right after the war, Germany was hit with reparations, which meant that the country had to pay war damages that the Allies occurred. Obviously, the burden of those funds was astronomical for a country that needed to rebuild and restructure, in combination with the Great Depression that hit about 10 years later. I think officially, Germany only made about one or maybe a couple other payments. Inflation, due to the reparations and variety of other factors skyrocketed. Think Venezuela and maybe even worse. And the money became so worthless that children used stacks of it for building blocks and sometimes it was even used for wallpaper. Germany's economy was seemingly turning around under Hitler and the people of Austria wanted some of that success. Again, they likely felt put out by the Allies imposing burdens that likely caused many economies to suffer. Most notably, France and, Ger and the United Kingdom did nothing about this invasion. This happened in early March 1938. Hitler then moved on to Sunderland, which at this point was part of Czechoslovakia. 
Bavaria. There are many ethnic Germans in Sunderland, and Hitler wanted to absorb it back into Germany. These Germans in Sunderland did not find themselves in Czechoslovakia by choice, but under the Allied dismantling of the Austria-Hungarian Empire after the First World War. While perhaps this feels like a broken record, the Allied forces did a lot wrong after the First World War, which laid all the foundations for the second global conflict. Germany, and Hitler especially, wanted to amend this slight and reabsorb this territory back into Germany. Hitler wanted to accomplish this by engaging in conflict, but his generals were concerned that this was a clear violation of the Versailles Agreement and would put them into war. Hitler, by no means, was opposed to this, but in this particular instance, cooler heads prevailed and he succeeded without even firing a shot. This was accomplished through the Munich Agreement, which was signed by Great Britain, France, Italy, and Germany, which permitted Hitler to annex Sunderland back into Germany. Based on what was agreed upon at Versailles, this should have never happened. It was a clear violation of Czechoslovakia's sovereignty and a sign that Germany was growing in aggression towards its neighbors. Rightly, many put part or all of the blame for this fiasco on Neville Chamberlain, the British Prime Minister at the time, who believed that this concession would satisfy Germany. He truly believed that Germany didn't want another war and that this quote, commonest little dog I have ever seen, unquote, would not pose a global threat in just one short year. Like the German traditionalists, they believe that Hitler was both inconsequential and lacked the disposition of those of normal classes. Again, this was in a time when ancestry and connections truly meant something. He also believed that Hitler would not go on to conquer all of Czechoslovakia. He was wrong. And the entire British establishment was also wrong. During this entire process, Chamberlain's attitude towards Hitler started to change, and many were concerned that the British PM might actually be falling under the German dictator's spell. Duff Cooper, First Lord of the Admiralty, wrote, quote, After all, Hitler's achievement is not due to his intellectual attainments, nor to his oratorical powers, but to the extraordinary influence which he seems to be able to exercise over his fellow creatures. I believe that Neville is under that influence at this time. Unquote. Signed in September 1938, Germany reneged on its word about Czechoslovakia and invaded the country about six months later in March 1939 in an act of obvious aggression. The Allied forces did nothing and did not support the territorial integrity of the country that the alliance had helped create in the first place, which was never a part of Germany's territory. Then Germany invaded Poland in September 1939, and it was the final straw that broke the camel's back. The Allied forces finally declared war, but things, at least initially, went incredibly well for Hitler and his aggressive and outrageous military strategy. It was an outcome that the Allies didn't think possible. Who would want a war? But these leaders fundamentally did not understand Adolf Hitler's philosophy. He wanted war. He loved bloodshed and conflict because it was part of his philosophy about the struggle and the battlefield provided an incredible opportunity for the greatest struggle of all. Part 3 Tides were turning. The invasion of Poland in 1939 was a wild success. With the help of the USSR in the east, the country fell within a month. Then, Hitler immediately turned his attention to a plan that would allow the German army to invade France, which was a huge gamble. Poland is understandable as it didn't have a strong military presence, but France was an entirely different matter, and it would also encourage more Western involvement in the conflict, and many of his generals considered it impossible until at least 1942. The French were also entirely confident in their own abilities to defend their country. They anticipated a swift victory over German forces. Unfortunately, that is not what happened. 
But before Hitler moved on to France, he invaded Denmark, which fell literally within hours, and Norway, where the Nazis were going to maintain their iron ore supplies for the war effort. The effort to maintain supplies will definitely come back and bite Germany later in the war. The invasion of France was swift and on Hitler's direction, which again was surprisingly effective. The German army had an interesting tradition of delegating to field commanders who had specific objectives they had to fulfill, but they had the autonomy to achieve those goals in whatever way they saw fit. In combat, this flexibility is an incredible asset and improved really effective in this French assault. One of the most decisive generals on the ground was the Desert Fox, Erwin Rommel. Yes, before he went to the desert, he was actually in France. He made a quick advance through and crossed the River Meuse in record time. The French thought that they would have like days to mount their defense and destroy the bridge if they needed to, but he got across it before they even knew it. The strike was very quick and effective, and obviously they never made it to destroy the bridge. The Germans were also successfully able to corner the Allies in Dunkirk on the shores of France. Despite the Germans' overwhelming advantage, Hitler actually made the decision to leave them be on the shores, which allowed the English to eventually retrieve most of their soldiers. It was kind of an interesting decision and one that the generals generally questioned as the Germans definitely had the upper hand. The French invasion was the last great victory the Nazis had. Though Hitler's ideas had led to the astonishing success on the battlefield, his decision to invade the USSR, more specifically Russia, was a disaster that started Germany on this path to defeat. Of course, the Russian invasion in June 1941, known as Operation Barbosa, was a profound misstep. There's one constant throughout history. Invading Russia is always a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad idea. To successfully invade and conquer Russia, it can be done, but it's very hard. A military must begin early in the spring and successfully finish by the end of summer, before fall and the cold weather sets in, and maintain its supply lines. Germany was unable to do either of these things. While there was some in- initial success, the Germans were unable to capture Stalingrad and got involved in a guerrilla warfare on the streets in the city, where the home team, of course, had the advantage in troops, supplies, and covers. Most of the German troops weren't even supplied with winter attire because they they were so confident in their abilities that they forgot like the one thing. If these men are in spring attire, yeah, they'll do pretty bad in the Russian winter. Hitler, and at least some of his military commanders, believed that Stalin had killed most of his competent and brilliant commanders during the purges. While this was mostly true, he still had some he relied on and grew to rely on them more as the Germans mounted the invasion, which is a complete shock to him and very like detrimental to him personally because Hitler and Stalin had signed a non-aggression pact earlier in the war. So this betrayal really weighed heavily on Stalin. There were also three main theaters in World War II, the Western, the Eastern, and Asia. Many considered the actions that occurred in combat in Western Europe quote-unquote civilized. The same could not be said for the Eastern Front between the Russians and the Germans. Due to the brutal tactics that the Germans employed, including raiding homes of local families for supplies, there was a lot of bad blood between both sides. By this time, Hitler had basically taken control of all aspects of the military. Every order was his, despite the experience of his military leaders. He relied on himself for basically every decision. As he had been in charge for about 10 years at this point, he was also able to cultivate a larger group of military men who had been around and deeply influenced by his philosophy. Though there were some pockets of resistors, many actually created plans to assassinate him at some point, but no one actually ever succeeded. What perhaps isn't discussed much is that at his core, Hitler was a nihilist. He believed in struggle, bloodshed, and violence. He thought that every 15 to 20 years, 10% of Germans should give the ultimate sacrifice and die in battle. His men were dying every day in the East, and he really did not care. If they didn't survive, it was their fault for being weak, and in no way his for being a poor commander. Around this time, in an after-monologue dinner, Hitler said, 
quote, the earth continues to go round, whether it's the man who kills the tiger or the tiger who eats a man, the stronger asserts his will, it's the law of nature. The world doesn't change, its laws are eternal. It was this philosophy that led him and some of those closest to him into death. And as the news tightened and the United States entered the war, D-Day happened, the Soviets gave a strong counterattack to victory was becoming an ever-distant dream. Though he was always hopeful that something miraculous would happen and that the whole war would suddenly turn around, even in those last days. But if Germany lost, he did believe that essentially the whole country should be destroyed in the process. After all, the weak are consumed by the strong. Part four, the end. In the last month of his life, April 1945, Hitler both celebrated his 56th birthday on April 20th and committed suicide on the 30th. It was an end to a life that was worshipped by some and became reviled by nearly everyone. Between 1942 and 1945, the tide had turned decisively against Germany in the war. Though Hitler had some initial early successes, however, his obsession with control had led Germany easily into the clutches of defeat. It was only a matter of time before the Allies basically destroyed the capital city of Berlin. During this time, there were several attempts to take Hitler's life, especially by those in the military. Understanding Germany's hopeless situation, many were trying to figure out how to eliminate Hitler as chancellor in order to try to save as much of the country as they could and hopefully come to better terms. After all, a lot of these people lived through the end of the Treaty of Versailles, which was terrible for Germany, so they were expecting something similar. By this point, German cities were getting absolutely pounded across the country by Allied bombing raids, which decimated cities and left tens of thousands dead in their wakes. The German people and a growing number of military leaders were tired and desperate. But Hitler, ever the nihilist and optimist, kind of an interesting combination, wanted Germany to continue fighting until the bitter end. By January 1945, it became apparent that it was safer for Hitler and his senior staff to move into the bunker underneath the chancellery. Hitler had actually not spent much of the war in Berlin. As the situation grew more dire, the bunker underneath the chancellery offered both protection, easy access to certain meetings, and a central location where orders could be relayed. While Hitler initially attended meetings in undamaged areas of the chancellery wasn't long before he spent all his time in the bunker. The mood in the bunker was tense and often swung between optimism and hope to overwhelming despair. It was also during this time that when members of Hitler's entourage demonstrated their true loyalties. This came out specifically in a particular speech of Hitler's in the bunkers where he essentially admitted that it was over or basically that was everybody's interpretation of what he said. Those in senior management interpreted it in a variety of ways, mostly that Hitler basically had given up all hope, which highlighted Hitler's sense of both paranoia and impending doom. Heinrich Himmler, who was both head of the SS and helped build all the concentration and death camps, was working hard behind the scenes to broker a deal with the Allies and was trying to exchange prisoners in the camp for leniency. He portrayed himself as a de facto leader since Hitler appeared to have given up. Hitler ordered his arrest and death and he eventually committed suicide after being captured by the Allies, though he did try to escape. Hermann Goering did something similar, as in the event of Hitler's death, he would actually become the leader of Germany. His betrayal and that of Himmler's was a severe blow to Hitler personally. Their betrayal and Hitler's reaction is kind of fascinating. What I found most interesting as I explored his last days is the notable men who risked their life and limb to see Hitler one last time. Their trips were both entirely unnecessary and filled with immense risk. Alfred Speer had been at the infamous meeting where it appeared like Hitler had relinquished control, and he came back to see him to say a goodbye for the final time, despite having to fly through a Soviet artillery fire to do so. Robert Ritter von Grime did the same. He was a notable fighter pilot, and his mistress also came with him, not only to see Hitler off, but also to die with him, though they didn't get that their wish as Hitler sent them off actually to arrest Himmler. Why did they come back under heavy bombardment to visit a dying man? Of course, most notably the Goebbels and 
their six children died in the bunker. The couple threw suicide after having their own children murdered by some of Hitler's doctors. A true believer until the end, Goebbels and his wife could not imagine a life without the leadership of Hitler and could not imagine the same for their children either. As we've discussed earlier, Hitler was a true believer that the weak deserved death and he was always going to commit suicide if he lost. He did so by first testing out the poison on his beloved dog Blondie, perhaps the only thing in his life that he ever showed any actual affection to. His new wife Ava, who he married on April 29th in front of a few key witnesses, committed suicide by cyanide next to her husband who shot himself the next day, April 30th. The ending of Hitler's life was fitting to his philosophy. As I research this, what I found interesting isn't the facts as much. We know them, and there are a variety of books that can give you a better play-by-play than me. But the men who came back, even briefly, to say goodbye to this man and those that didn't. And the Nazi system, and specifically the propaganda surrounding Hitler, sometimes reads more like a cult than anything. In fact, Jim Jones of the Jonestown Mass Suicide took some of his speaking style from Adolf Hitler. But unlike Jim Jones, Hitler had few true believers in the very end. I think that the only ones he could could really count on were Grime and Goebbels. Some of the closest people to Hitler, as soon as it was apparent that Hitler was falling apart and the end was nigh, did everything they could to cover their tracks and or make up some type of arrangement with the Western allies, not the Russians. His ability to seemingly hypnotize people led them to do crazy things, but when push came to shove, many chose to save their own lives and that of their country. Although his charisma was incredible, there was apparently a limit. Even the rather loyal Spear ignored Hitler's order to of a scorched earth policy which advocated for the total destruction of much of Germany as the troops retreated. Of those leaders that survived, many were found guilty of war crimes and crimes against humanity during the Nuremberg trials and executed, including Hans Frank, who I mentioned earlier. Goering was able to commit suicide in Nuremberg before his execution, though he stood trial for the entire time. Rudolf Hess, who was kind of an interesting figure, actually had a nervous breakdown in 1942 and flew to London in an attempt to end the war. He eventually committed suicide at the ripe old age of 93 in prison. Speer served his time and was eventually released from prison and wrote a book about his time with Hitler. One of his tidbits or anecdotes about Hitler was that he considered his tastes rather quote-unquote gaudy. Though there are still some Nazi hunters, many of the men who killed the Jews in the killing fields or in the concentration and death camps came back and actually ended up living mostly normal lives. There's so much to discuss that perhaps I didn't cover everything or glossed over some things, but the ability of Hitler to use his charisma and influence to manipulate people into doing his bidding is astounding. His grand vision for Germany led to the deaths of 60 million people combined during the entire war. And the development of a system of killing that was nearly perfect in its ability to wipe out an entire group of people. We've never seen anything like it in history and hopefully never will again. Part 5. Why We Study Hitler There are many questions sometimes about why we should study Hitler and what he did. A British reality television star, I know, not a great example, said that students in school should spend more time learning about climate change and less on World War II, and by extension Hitler. I have several books on Hitler in my library because of my own personal interest in understanding this period of history. I always wonder if someone would judge me for it. There's also questions on if Mein Kampf should continue to be published over fear that it may influence other people. Here's the thing. We must learn what drove Hitler and how he did it to prevent it from happening again. I've spent a lot of time as a student and a professional studying genocide, and there's a movement to try and make the Holocaust just like any other genocide throughout history. But there is something that is truly frightening and utterly unique about what Hitler did. The Germans, given a year or two more, may have actually succeeded in killing every Jew on the European continent where they held power. There has never been anything like it in history. The systematic and bureaucratic methods of the Nazi killing machine were nearly 
perfect in its ability to kill nearly every Jew on the continent. That's why we study Hitler. We don't if we don't learn from the mistakes of the past, we will be doomed to repeat it. I think one of the things that we also need to do when studying this time period is avoid calling every person who participated a quote-unquote monster. Were their actions monstrous? Absolutely. But unfortunately, I think when we overemphasize the fact that we they were monsters, we almost forget the fact that they were human. All these men who participated in the Einsatzgruppen, the concentration, the death camps, all of them basically would not have done this without Adolf Hitler. Though mass murder and genocide will always exist, we are human beings after all, but the matter and method and finality will hopefully never be seen again. And that is history. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode of History with Brittany. I hope you enjoyed it and learned something. If you would like to listen to other topics, feel free to drop me a line on Twitter at History with Brit, two Ts, Instagram and Facebook at History with Brittany, and on my website, historywithbrittany.com. Let me know what you would like to learn more about. Thank you so much again, and I look forward to meeting you next week.